0: Angels don't always come with wings and flowing white robes. They may want spreadsheets and production updates. They may ask you to not just forecast your company growth, but to show that growth. These angels are the investors Hall Martin works with as he shepherds entrepreneurs through the process of seed stage funding. Hall launched the Texas Entrepreneur Network and serves as the vice chairman of the Baylor Angel Network. And as he explains to host Kevin Kilacky. He is also the founder and director of the Texas Open Angel Network, which educates angel investors. And as part of that, Hall has something in common with Kevin. He hosts a podcast series.
1: Wonderful. Hall Martin of 10 Capital Network is here to join us today. Hall, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, we're looking forward to learning about your group and uh, your business model with the 10 Capital Network, how that's evolved over the years your background story, and what you're doing that's unique uh, to help these small businesses get funding here in Central Texas.
2: Kevin, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: You bet. Well, why don't we just go ahead and start off, give the listeners a background on you, the story of 10 Capital, and really how you are changing the way fundraising is working.
2: Cool. Well, sure. So my background is I came to Austin in 1984 for graduate school and have stayed here ever since. And I went to work after graduate school for a company that uh, later went uh, IPO around the mid 90s. And at that point, started doing angel investing. Uh, when I was in high school, my father started to teach me a little bit about uh, mutual funds. And then as we went into college, we we got into sector funds. And then when we got into graduate school, we were doing even higher level things. And if you just keep working your way up that uh, curve, you eventually get to angel investing. And in the mid 90s, when The company went IPO and I was employee number 93. I started doing angel investing because it was just the next step up the ladder. And we had an angel network in Austin called the Capital Network. It ran from 95 to about 2002. And we went out and started doing uh, watching people pitch for funding and started doing deal flow. And In the 90s, they would always stand up and they would ask for $5 million to start a web business. And people today don't believe me when I say that. But You have to realize back then there was you know there was no business services available you had to build your own server farm you had to pay american wages for everything you had to buy everything You couldn't rent anything and so it was just expensive and that was mostly in the domain of of very high net worth individuals and vc funds long story short the group was tied to the dot-com world and when they went away you know when that went away they went away with it and so we were without an angel network for about four years And so I started, uh, you know, so in 2006, the city did a restart, and they called it the Central Texas Angel Network. And I was the first member to sign up for it. I said, hey, I want to share this deal flow and due diligence with others, because it's a lot of work. If you're out there trying to find, you spend all day finding the deals, and you spend all night diligencing them, and it's a tough road. You really want to share that with other people, and you aren't going to put all the money in anyway. And so when you're the first member into a group, you're automatically on the board, and Uh, on on the board in charge of membership and so that's what i was asked to do was help recruit more members and i did that for a summer and we got about 50 members recruited and then we lost our director so i became the director and i ran it for about two years and we got about 50 members in there and we got about five million dollars invested and we um, had a lot of fun with it and that that five million dollars turned into a a 40X return overall. We had some really two or three great uh, home runs out of it that really propelled the group onwards. And then my undergraduate, Baylor University, came to me in 2007 and said, hey, we want an angel network out of our alumni association. Can you help us? I had an undergrad degree from Baylor. And so I said, yeah, I'll help you put it together. And we went and put together a program that would give the uh, alumni association an angel group that was inside the university and the students were given, the ability to come in and uh, actually do the analysis on the deals coming in. They'd spend 20, 25 hours on each deal, analyzing it, doing cap table analysis, etc. And they they ended up getting great jobs out of it because they were working with real deals, real startups, and they had a, a real proficiency there. And so that group's gone on to invest, I think, $13 million in startups and still a member there. And then Williamson County came and they wanted Angel Network for their area that's round rock georgetown which is north of Austin, and so we were running deal flow out out of the terra vista golf ranch in round rock for several years and we later turned that into a funding portal because most of the deals were restaurants and retail, not really angel deals. But it was a lot of fun putting those together. So in 2009, I retired from my day job at that company. And I said, I want to really work with startups because that was a lot of fun. And so I called it the Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we started helping uh, startups in Texas raise funding from angel groups. And then over the time period, I i started needing more funding so i started going to the bay area in new york from 2010 to 15 and recruiting venture capital investors into our network 2016 and 17 i had a whole bunch of family offices come into the network because they wanted to start doing deals direct they didn't want to go through funds anymore or not exclusively and then in 2017 i also started getting calls from startups in seattle chicago and other places saying hey i've talked to everybody in my area but I need more investors. I got halfway through my raise and then it just stopped. And we want access to your investors, but we're not in Texas. How do we do this? So we changed the name to 10 Capital, did a rebrand. That's what 10 stands for, Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we started working with startups around the country in the same way, which were helping them raise funding through a retainer model, we'd go and basically run investor relations campaign in the early stage. Investor relations is very popular in later stage companies and public companies because they can afford it. And we ended up pricing our program in such a way that startups could afford it. Uh, we also priced it in such a way that uh, pre-revenue startups you know, found it a little bit challenging because we really wanted companies that were in the market with some revenue. We found that that's where our model worked best. Didn't have to have a lot, but they had to be in the market And I I remember hearing from startups all my life, you know, in two months, we're going to the market and knowing how very few actually go to market in two months, sometimes it's a year, two years later, that that was kind of code for we're, we're still not ready. And, but when they're in the market, well, then now we're actually out Turning a dollar, making revenue or growing. That's where most angel investors want to come in at. And so that's why we kind of chose a pricing model so we could self-select into the, the, the group that we can actually help. So that's, that's the history of how we got to 10 capital. We've helped over, helped over several thousand companies raise over $900 million since we started. And our model is to be not a broker. Cause it, when I started Texas entrepreneurs network, I looked at the broker. Model and found I was going to lose the majority of my investor network of angel groups and VC funds because they don't allow brokers to be in the deal. They just have covenants in the fund or bylaws in the angel group that don't allow brokers to take fees out. So that's why we want the retainer model so we can maintain the network itself. And I felt this model was a little bit more scalable because we can always add more people and add more programs to help startups raise funding. And we're continuing to grow, adding more companies all the time to it and going into the uh, uh, new sectors uh, as well. Blockchain, cannabis are great sectors for us now as well. So that's how we got to 10 Capital to where we are today day. There's about 10 of us in the program at this point, and we're continuing to grow and uh, expand the uh, effort. Wonderful.
1: Well, I know that uh, you you touched on this briefly, but I wanted mm-hmm. you to spend a little bit of time fleshing it out for the audience here today. Uh, FAS or Funding as a Service. Uh, tell us about that. It's the first time I'd heard this was really speaking with you a number of years ago as as you were talking about the, the model and how it works. So, you know, A, what is it? And then who is a good fit in terms of a company and who's a good fit in terms of an investor?
2: Sure. You know, so we... Coined the term funding as a service because we felt that was what we were helping bring. We weren't raising funding for the startup. We're helping them raise it by solving some of the harder problems. Getting the introductions was a big problem. For some, getting the documents put together was an issue. And what was out there were often expensive attorneys or expensive broker-dealers that really didn't fit the early-stage world. And in fact, there's a portion of the early-stage world brokers don't even participate because the, the dollars just aren't big enough. So we priced ourselves and positioned ourselves in such a way that we were more of a platform-based business. We were more of a recurring revenue model that, that, that helps if you can do a recurring model of funding that or or payment that you can actually pay people to consistently provide the services through mailers and events and podcasts and other things we were doing to make the connection between the startup and the investor and educate the startup as well. That uh, is startups that were looking to raise funding. We would solve pieces of it, but we weren't really doing the whole thing for them. And that was allowed us to price it at a point where we could actually deliver it. And then we had funds raising from limited partners that came to us with the same request, I need access to limited partners. Can you make any reductions? Yes, we can. So we added that to our program. And then when I talked to angel groups, I found that they were also on a limited budget, just like startups were. And when I asked what was your main need, the answer was we need more members. So well, we have quite a few people that are coming into this space, we can always recommend joining the group as an angel member. So we we have a partnership with many angel groups where we're helping them find members. And we're moving into the world of syndication platforms as well. It lets us go out to not only angels, but those who are not angels, they are accredited investors but they're not in a group uh, let them to follow on what the angels do so our model now is we were for example we're helping a new mexico angel find more members for their group and any deal that they uh, lead we're going to put on a syndication portal and go out to other people in new mexico to follow on fund it And then from there we'll go to outside of New Mexico, and we'll capture quite a bit more investment dollars because we're capturing, we're leveraging what the New Mexico Angel did as far as leading it, and we share the carry with them. They get a piece of the carry because they did the work. And I found that was a challenge in the early days of angel groups is that many groups don't allow, weren't weren't taking any payment or compensation for doing the lead work, and so that became tough to do. It didn't get done well or at all in some cases. But if you're going to compensate them with a piece of the carry because everyone that comes behind is going to pay a little bit for that you get a much higher quality product, you get a deal memo, you get a proper evaluation, you get all the things you want to see in in the lead Mm -hmm. investment that makes for a better deal. So we help the angel groups, we help the uh, funds, and we also help the startup find investors. And so our mantra is we connect startups and investors for funding and that goes across all three. Wonderful. Now I know that looking
1: at the website and having known you for quite some time, the ideal company is that uh, you know that company that you said has been around a few years and, and maybe has some revenue going now. you know they're not pre-revenue type companies. but you know how how what about the other companies? you know really from a series you know where the series is series A, a B or is a seed company, you know who is the uh, the ideal company that needs to be reaching out to 10 to uh, help get into the funding as a service platform?
2: Well, I think the key is, and we do work with Seed Series A and Series B venture deals all the way up. At some point, they stop raising venture capital and they just start doing venture debt. And You probably don't need us for uh, doing that. But if you want to raise equity funding, we're a good fit. And, and if you ever run investor relation campaigns, the one thing you you have to have in order to make it work is a growth story. We have to have updates about how the sales team, product and fundraiser are moving forward because you're basically saying, here's a great uh, story for you. And you have to then deliver on the story with updates that demonstrate momentum and traction in the deal. So those who have momentum and traction uh, we're, we're a great resource to come to get more investors for your deal through mailers, through events, through all the things that we talked about to get the word out to the investors. Because what I witnessed when I ran the angel groups is entrepreneurs coming in and pitching to my room full of investors. 90% would pitch, go away, and we would never hear from them again. I no idea what happened. They just disappeared on us. 10% though came back, gave us updates, reminders, told us more about it. And on the fourth update, out came the checkbooks. It was like clockwork. And it started to become clear. Well, the investors really want to see the growth story in action. And two, they want to build a little bit of a relationship. And that's part of this as well. You have to build a relationship with the investor if they're going to write a 50, 100 or higher level check. If you're getting $500 off of a Title III crowdfunding portal, you don't need to build a relationship. But then you don't get much support from those investors either. So if you want more support and you want to raise higher level monies, you know, relationship becomes a part of it at some level. And we were helping with that as well in these campaigns. So those are the ones that work best in our program.
1: Now, also you through the you know the Baylor Angel Network is a great example, but I also know that um, you're involved with the University of Texas and in plugged into some of the more academic groups as well. Tell me about how that works in terms of you know plugging into the universities. Is that part of the entrepreneurial programs at the universities, or is it part of a research piece, or is it a combination? Is it part of a you know the commercialization program that, that has become pretty popular here at University of Texas. You know how how are you how are you integrating with the the thought leadership and the connections at the universities?
2: Sure, we we've worked with the U- University of Texas in many ways. We've been on the business plan competitions. We've been in the Moot Corps. We've been in many of the programs that they have. But the one that uh, we spent the most time on was the idea to. I, I did an IP uh, program, which was yeah. basically taking four uh, projects out of the engineering school. We tried to get one from the mechanical department, one from the electrical, one from the biomedical, one from computer science. And we would put on each project a, a graduate student, typically, that was the lead engineer. And we we get a law school student and a business school student. And in one semester, we were doing market research, market validation on commercializing that piece of technology. And we, I co-taught I, I co- 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 the class with a lawyer who actually did the intellectual property side of it. They were showcasing, here's how you write up the claims for IP. And, and then I did the commercial side. Here's how you write a one-page exact summary. And what the teams had to do was go out and talk to customers, look at the market, analyze it, and then come with a version one of the product. How are we going to productize this technology? And by that, we would look for a data sheet, you know, one page data sheet of what the specifications were proposed to be a one-page business plan of what market we're going to go after, how we're going to attack it, how we're going to price it, etc. And then one page on the uh, intellectual property claims that we would file as provisional patent and then have a demo day at the end of the semester to showcase it with other startups out there. And it was the cross-functional experience where uh, the one who was usually running it was the graduate student on the engineering side, had the vision of going out and starting their own company, and they got to see that process. From all sides, and they got to see okay, for intellectual property, we have these choices to make. For product decision, this was really an eye-opener. They had to really sit down and start thinking about the trade-offs, what to put in the product, what not to put into it. And version one has to be sellable. You have to be able to go sell it. So we had to go out and talk to customers and say, if I built this, would you buy it? And get the yeses and the nos until we could figure out what that was. So it was a great experience to put those together. A little cumbersome to work through the university system because they weren't set up to tie engineering and Mm. law school students and uh, business school students into one class, but with some handholding, we were able to make that work. And we ran that program for many years and had a great time out of it. At the end of the uh, semester, it was run in the spring, they would go into a local accelerator for another Uh, you know, three more months of uh, maturing. And then after that, they would go start their business in many cases, because that was what they wanted to do after their academic career was to actually run and start a business. And, you know, they would then license out a piece of technology from the university in that case to carry it forward. So it was a great uh, experience to put together. That sounds like a lot of fun. I know you mentioned this as well. The investor
1: relations piece is, you know, we do quite a bit of research and work with different venture capital groups as well. But we we find out, especially in the seed stage, that there are no analytics to run in the background. The company doesn't have a history. They don't, you know, it's you're you're betting on the people at, at that point. Um, but one of the most common themes that I see in successfully funded seed stage companies is. Good, bad, or indifferent, they are excellent communicators with their investors, and because of that, when times are going well, the investors want to put more money in, and when times aren't going well, it's not a shock that it came. They they knew it was coming, and they're already in there trying to help the company, trying to help the founder or founders pivot and make changes. You know, within that. Uh, with all that said, knowing that that is something that you're. It's a a large piece of value that you're providing to both the investors and the startups. Do you guys collect any data on the background in terms of you know, people who come through the 10 Capital Network, get funding and move on? What is the success rate or survival rate of those companies? And is it significantly diff- different than those that don't seek out a solution like 10?
2: Well, we get a wide range of companies coming through, and just because they joined the program and went through it for six months and then left, it it was a little hard to compare the results one to the other because some people come in and they they did everything. They went to all the programs, went to all the events, did, did all the steps, and gave it a very good uh, effort and uh, follow through, and they almost always raised money at some level. Then we had other people come in, and uh, this is the group we often challenge with, that they would do a little bit of the program, go dark on us for about six weeks, come back, do a little bit more, and then go dark for another month and a half. And Uh, And of course, they got a very different result out of it because they weren't really consistent, didn't do all the processes and so forth. So we ended up coming up with what we call the campaign score. We say, we'll give you points for every mailer you do and and more points for every event you come to. And if you do a podcast, more points. And when we got to 90 to 100, 90% of the people had raised funding. Uh, on it and in some cases people got there in three four months other cases they got there in five six months in some cases they never got there they got to 40 or 50 and the program was up and they were out and uh, no funding so I would say the answer is it really depended upon how people engaged with the program and, and got things done. Because in some cases, it, it can take longer to get there, but you can get there. In other cases, people just never got there. Uh, they just never got to it. And there was a direct correlation between the campaign score and funding and how much funding they got. And so we, the magic number became 100. You want to get to 100 on the campaign score and here are the things you need to do to go get it. And that was a, a very high correlation in that case but it didn't always relate straight to time and partly is because people came, brought us in at different stages sometimes you're brought in at the beginning of the campaign where we're just still trying to put docs together sometimes mm-hmm. in the middle and sometimes at the very end we're raising two million dollars they only have 200k left but we have talked to everybody five times and we are out of investors we need new names and so that's what we would help them with so getting the getting the work done became the mantra you have to do the work to get the, the funding and Funding is not that different from sales. I found many people considered mm-hmm. it different. I, I I was always amazed at people that came into the pitch room wanting to raise a million dollars pitching. And when they didn't see checkbooks coming out in 15 minutes, well, this is a failed pitch. And I'd say, well, if you were selling a million dollar product, what would you have to do well we'd have to do demos we have to do trials we have to do pilots we have to do multiple meetings we have to do committees it takes 6 months and say this is not that this is the very same thing you're going to be having to do the very same amount of work to get to it and our rule at the end of the day was for every million dollars you're trying to raise you need one calendar year to raise it And that includes Hmm. getting the docs ready, getting the business ready, going out meeting investors, doing the closing rounds, taking the month of July and part of August off because of holiday and all the usual things that go to slow it down. get it and so our rule is uh, a million dollars equals one calendar year in the very early stage as you get to series a and b it can move faster because now there's more data to look at and people can make decisions more quickly but when there's no data as you mentioned before you, you know people are going to sit there and watch it for two three months to see if we're actually making the progress we say we're going to make and that's the biggest coaching we have to startups is you you can't just forecast growth you have to demonstrate it And you have to also tell them you have to go back and remind them and found that the investor relations piece was actually very hard for startups. They just got so busy with building product and serving customers and hiring team members that uh, they often would not uh, keep up, keep the investor up to date. And our coaching is take the investor on the journey with you. When you get there, you'll do a lot better. Had an entrepreneur company once saying, "I'm not raising funding now, but in six months I will be. Can I keep you informed of our progress?" And so I said, "Yes." I, you know, most investors do because they kind of want to see how does this thing work out. And every month they got a short email explaining what they were doing, how they were doing it. And in six months, when it came time to raise funding, they were able to close a lot more quickly because they had educated the all the investors on what they were doing, how they were doing it, and demonstrating their growth story, which I thought was a great way of doing it.
1: Very good. Well, I know we are uh, butting up on a half hour here very shortly. And uh, I always like to uh, wrap up conversations on the podcast with two questions. One is tell the listeners of the podcast your biggest success story. Everyone loves to hear success stories. And I'd love to hear what's a wonderful success story. It doesn't have to necessarily be the biggest exit that came out, but just the best story that has come out of your time working in Helping these companies get funding that they need, and then move on to the next stage or the next stage, or or eventually exiting the company. Uh, well, and I, then the last one is after that. Just yeah. tell the listeners how they can get a hold of you. Sure.
2: Well, I think when I was back in my my early angel group days, we we had uh, you know five million raised for that first angel group, and. Uh, we had a company come in, and they actually, you know, three, three, and three million of it was in one company, and uh, had just a lot of fun putting that together. But it was highly risky; it was a uh, cybersecurity play, and that was back when identity theft was just starting to come into focus. And. Uh, that company went on to raise a, you know, you know, achieve a 40x return for all the investors, which was just a big home run for a, an angel group. And when you're at the, you know, first round, you go out and you actually get a 40x home run. You know, you just wow. The, you can't let yourself believe that it's always going to be like this. Usually, you don't. You get those, you know, you know, four, four, five, six years into it, not not on year one. So it was just a great thing to have and see it really take off, and then the the group really coalesced around it to grow because of that uh, that win there. And then there were others that came there later as well. So, I think that was one of the, the big ones that I remember as well. There has been many others that have raised money, gone on, had achieved great exits and so forth. We did a series of events in 2015, 16 and 17 and saw many of those companies go on and go IPO and Meet, meet other uh, great milestones to achieve success. And it was great to see those companies continue to progress as well. So I, th- I think the best way to reach me is if you wanted to go to our website, kingcapital.group. Uh, just sign up there and uh, let me know what we can do to help you guys uh, raise funding or invest in startups. We work on both sides and we're happy to talk to anybody that's interested in this space. Wonderful. Or Is there anything else
1: about 10 Capital Group or 10 Capital Network that uh, do you think people should know that we didn't cover today?
2: We have a great set of educational resources. We do what's called the Startup Funding Espresso. It's a one to two minute podcast I publish every day, uh, Monday through Friday. We'll send it to you on your inbox. And what you can do is learn something about startup funding and or startup investing uh every day either listen to it or read it it's actually off of our investor connect site investorconnect.org is where you get it Go to the homepage, a pop-up box comes in, just put your email in there, we'll send you something. And for those who are trying to understand better the space, it's really easy because you get little bite-sized nuggets that you can take in, think about, and then we actually take those and build e-guides and blog posts and other things out of them as well to build up higher-level content. But there's a lot we can do to help people learn more about this space through those tools.
1: Wonderful. Well, Hall,
2: we have, we have hit our half hour limit
1: here today. I want to thank you for coming on and joining me, sharing with the listeners uh, about what you know. Angel Network seed, seed stage funding looks like. What, what does 10 Capital do and how do those companies get a hold of you? So thank you so much for coming, sharing your time and your
2: wisdom. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. You bet.
0: Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinasaracapital.com. Cena Capital LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients, where Sina and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure the information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such it should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security it does not take into account any investors particular investment objectives strategies tax status or investment horizon you should consult your attorney or tax advisor